0: Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com.
1: I'm Khalil A Colonna, and this is Nashville. Today, we're bringing you a rebroadcast of our episode about independent music venues, which first aired in June. For me, there are few things better than heading out to a music venue and discovering a new band or performer. Of course, it's a nice bonus if I get to catch an act just before it becomes a national sensation. I saw them win, right? That is a part of the beauty of independent music venues. Up and coming artists can play and grow their fan base. But they're not only steps on the ladder to stardom, they're intimate spaces that connect musicians and fans through the shared experience of live music. I mean, that is a big part of what Music City is supposed to be about, right? But as development accelerates and property values explode, indie venues are left in a tough spot. Some have already shut down. Later this hour, we'll talk with operators and musicians and learn how the city might be able to help preserve these spaces. But first, it's shaping up to be a rough flu season. And Tennessee is in the middle of it right now. Not only that, but children's hospitals have seen way more respiratory viruses like RSV than usual. And COVID is always lurking these days. To help us get a better understanding of what's going on, I'd like to welcome Vanderbilt Infectious Disease Specialist Dr. William Schaffner and WPLN's Senior Healthcare Reporter, Blake Farmer. Thanks to both of you for being here. Really appreciate it. Dr. Schaffner, let's start with you. Talk about this flu surge. How bad is
2: it here? Well, it's bad. It's bad. Flu started early, four to six weeks early in the southeastern part of the country. Then it spread to the southwest, up the east coast, and then across the United States. So it's everywhere. And right here in Middle Tennessee, many children and many adults are now infected with the flu virus. And we're seeing a press on admissions in children's hospitals, along with that other virus you mentioned before, RSV, And also among adults, we're seeing many more adults admitted to hospitals with laboratory-confirmed influenza. Many more than we usually see at this time of the year. Flu is early, and if you look at the curve, it's just kind of going straight up.
1: Because flu is early, is there any chances that it will
2: end early? (laughs) Well, predicting Winter respiratory virus behavior is a hazardous occupation because, because you're often wrong. We would love for flu to peak early and then plummet so we could rest a bit easier throughout the rest of the winter. It did that last year. No telling what it will do this year, however. Flu is fickle. Hmm. I
1: thought COVID sort of killed off the flu the past couple of years. Is it back because we're all together again? There's no social distance and no mask.
2: We think that that has the major reason that RSV is out there. RSV is a virus that starts to infect young children and then you can get repeated infections. Hmm. But they stayed home. They didn't go to those birthday parties. They wore masks. And so... We have many young children who have gotten a little bit older and younger ones have come along who were not exposed to RSV. So RSV started early and they have a much, it has a much larger pool of susceptible children to infect. I'm sure that played a partial role with influenza, but we don't think it's the whole story with flu. There's still a lot of unknown about flu, Mm despite how much flu has been studied.
1: Now, we've heard you use this scary word, tridemic, in the last few weeks. But what's the concern? I mean, people are getting multiple viruses at once, and is the world shutting down again? Dr. Schaffner, just what is the fear with all this?
2: Well, we're not shutting down, but we need to learn to cope with these winter respiratory viruses. And this year, we happen to have three out there infecting people simultaneously. Influenza, RSV, and COVID, and I will also add a few other respiratory viruses that are minor. Mm. Something called rhinovirus and adenovirus. Never mind. These winter respiratory viruses have come early.
1: Wow, there's more viruses to consider. I'm I'm, I'm worried already. Now, you know, Blake, you've been reporting
3: on hospital staffing throughout the pandemic, right? Oh, well, I I certainly have. I mean, it's it's been a big issue uh, throughout the pandemic. It's a big, big issue now. I would think, or
1: actually hope, that things are better than they used to be. But, you know, is there a reason we might be worried about hospital capacity right now?
3: Well, I think the pandemic showed us that uh, it is. this is not about having uh, enough rooms and structures to hold patients. This is all about having the personnel to take care of the patients who need them so much. Um and this is hard to believe, I know, but staffing is still very challenging. Hospitals here in Tennessee, but it's a nationwide problem, are having big trouble. A few weeks ago, um I was at a you know in a in a conference hall full of Tennessee hospital executives. Their top issue, you know, sort of their their big annual conference. What are they talking about? how to keep their hospitals fully staffed. It's issue number one. And, you know, uh, they just have had so much burnout from the pandemic and, you know, folks moving jobs, uh, the the whole travel n- nursing phenomenon that really uh, spiked so much. It's just a challenge, and it's become clear that this is going to require some long-term solutions. And then to top it all off, um, there's been so much focus on adult hospitals throughout the pandemic because it it was uh, us, the adults, who who were really having such a hard time with COVID, not primarily kids. But now you've got children's hospitals who are really feeling the pinch from viruses like RSV. Mm. Um, and, And so now staffing is a challenge there as well. Now,
1: RSV is out there, and that's a pretty common respiratory virus that primarily affects kids, though it can get adults, too. So, Dr. Schaffner,
2: what can a hospital do for kids with RSV? Well, it's very important that children who have any sort of respiratory distress be brought to the hospital because pediatricians, they really recognize this syndrome of difficulty breathing, so-called bronchiolitis, inflammation of the bronchial tubes in young children. They know how to manage that. They can get children through this bad piece, and they can usually go home and do very well after two, three days in the hospital. Uh, We don't have a vaccine against RSV yet, but we do have vaccines against COVID, that new updated booster. And of course, we have available the annual seasonal vaccine against influenza.
1: All right. So speaking of vaccines with this flu surge, I have to wonder if people have been getting their flu shots this season.
3: Blake? Well, you know, you you look at the data that's from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, at least in most measures, we're running behind the last few years. Mm. Um, and, and experts who watch this, uh, you know, and this makes sense to most of us, right? Right. We got a little fatigued about vaccines, um, you know, and I know I'll just confess here on the air. I promise you I'm leaving here to pick up a prescription. And while I'm at the Kroger Pharmacy, going to get that flu shot. OK, <laughs> you know, uh, um, but it's it's probably a similar reason uh, that, that I have. I, I last year, I think, got the covid and the flu shot at the same time, felt pretty crummy for a day. I thought, well, maybe I should just split them up. Haven't just haven't gotten the flu shot yet. Well, guess what? I could quickly become part of the problem. And um, the numbers aren't quite as up to date with the flu shots as we, we, the tracking we had for, for COVID over time. But we, we, we know that we are running behind previous years. And, of course, flu got started earlier than normal. And then w- with the, the most recent COVID booster, um, you know, hard to know what, what people were expecting from that. But you're not seeing, you know, a mad rush in long lines to, uh, to get this shot. Now,
2: Dr. Schaffner, is it too late for folks to get their flu shots? No, 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 no. It's not too late. But I wouldn't linger. (laughs) Do it as quickly as possible. And I will say the influenza vaccine, you know, it protects against four different strains of influenza, is well-matched to those influenza strains that are out there trying to make us sick. And one other thing, we have to recognize that both the influenza vaccine and COVID vaccine are at their best in preventing the serious complications of these infections. So you can still get a, relatively speaking, milder case of influenza or a milder case of COVID, but the vaccines are preventing us from needing hospitalization and getting more seriously ill. And if they're doing that, they're doing their job. Is the new
1: COVID booster going to work against the variants we're seeing now?
2: It still works pretty well. It's true. The more variants we get, the more they deviate from the parent strain and what's in the vaccine. But so far, knock wood, these, the new updated booster that we have is still providing pretty darn solid protection against serious disease.
1: Mm. Now, aside from vaccines, How do we stay safe and keep those around us safe, especially over the holidays when a lot of us are traveling and
2: gathering in big groups? Simple things. Good hand hygiene is always important, particularly with RSV. You can get that virus on your fingertips, touch your nose and mouth and acquire an infection that way. So frequent good hand hygiene. Try to avoid people who are coughing and sneezing. If you're going indoors to a congregate setting where there are other people, think about dusting off that mask and putting it on because it will provide literally an additional layer of protection. This is particularly true for older people who are frail, people who have underlying illnesses, heart disease, lung disease, diabetes, if they're immune compromised because they're at higher risk of this serious infection. And apropos of Thanksgiving, we have a rule at our house, Think about it. You're welcome around the table if you're vaccinated against flu and COVID.
1: That sounds like a really good rule. I appreciate that. That is Dr. William Schaffner. He's an infectious disease specialist at Vanderbilt. And of course, WPLN senior healthcare reporter, Blake Farmer. Thanks to you both for joining us and stay healthy, gentlemen. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we're bringing you a rebroadcast of our June episode all about independent music venues. Why are some of Nashville's most iconic and favorite independent music venues closing their doors? And what can the city do about it? Stay with us. This is Nashville. Khalil Ekolona, and this is Nashville. In May, the complex that included Mercy Lounge, the Cannery Ballroom, and the High Watt closed its doors for the last time. Patrons and musicians alike pay tribute. New venues with different names will take over, but there's no doubt about it. It was the end of an era. And it was an increasingly familiar scene a favorite independent music venue shutting down because of new owners who either didn't see the value or saw it all too well. And just a few days ago, beloved indie venue Exit In hosted its final show. WPLN's Mariana Bacayao visited the club just before its final run.
4: Everyone's got an Exit In story. You know, it's been here so long, it's it's touched so many people's lives.
5: That's exit-in owner Chris Cobb. He's worked at the venue for the past 18 years, but he's been coming here since the 90s. He remembers one memorable night when his friends were playing a sold-out show there in 98.
4: Uh, Kenny Hires was the security guard and door guy who wouldn't let me in.
5: And then they became co-workers. He's great. Now, the independent music venue is changing hands. Cobb's lease is up at the end of the year, and the building's prime location on Elliston Pike makes it a hot commodity for developers. Hey, Bruce! Across the street from Exit Inn, Cobb waves to Bruce. He's a fellow indie music venue owner, currently having a parking dispute with the construction crew next to his place called The End. Bruce is a spry 78. He used to book shows for all the indie venues around town, including Exit Inn.
4: Some people remember the story of the chili peppers having Thanksgiving dinner on the floor and in Exit Inn. That was Bruce. He booked the chili peppers and had the dinner catered. Turkey, dressing, the whole bit.
5: Stories like this are all over the place. As we take one last tour, Cobb starts in the courtyard between Exit Inn and its bar, Hurry Back. That door, Cobb says, used to be the exit.
4: That's why it was, That's why they named it Exit Inn. So you'd actually come in from the back parking lot.
5: From there, he shows me the Wall of Fame.
4: Every name up there is played uh, Exit Inn at some point except for maybe uh, The Clash, who I think is an inaccuracy. They definitely played Nashville, but I, I, I actually don't think it was here. But um, everybody else on the wall has played Exit at some point.
5: We exit stage left. Backstage, there are several leather couches, more than a little frayed. Album posters, framed newspaper clippings, and photographs of people who have played here, like Chuck Berry, line the walls.
4: Yeah, that picture of Chuck was taken right here. You can see the beer cooler in the photograph, which is why it's hung right next to the beer cooler, because this is where it was taken uh, in 1980.
6: All
5: that history is on its way out. Developer A.J. Capital bought the building last summer. Cobb says he's been trying to buy it ever since.
4: You know, there was hope there until very recently, like a few weeks ago. So while we have been planning, um, there hasn't been a ton of certainty to exactly what was going to happen until very recently.
5: Fans of Exit Inn donated more than $200,000 to aid in the sale. Now, Cobb says that money will go towards supporting other independent places through Music Venue Alliance. What's next for the space is still uncertain, but Cobb says spirits are high for its last
4: shows. You know, change can be scary, but everybody feels really good. We feel good about um, the last few years, you know, since things started to get crazy.
5: Crazy meaning a fire at the venue, a pandemic and skyrocketing real estate prices. But Exit Inn is not the first independent music venue to be bought out by a bigger company this year. Mercy Lounge was acquired by Nashville-based DZL and played its last show in May. Cobb says these closures hurt early career musicians who rely on smaller venues to build a following.
4: They must exist for the ecosystem to thrive. No one goes from their bedroom or dorm room or garage to the arena that's not the way that it works
5: some of the best known names on exit in's wall of fame opened there as relative unknowns like our friend jimmy
1: for now the future of the building that was home to exit in for 51 years remains unclear so how are venue owners and operators feeling about all this and what can the city do to help Let's get back to our conversation from June. Chris Cobb is co-owner of Exit In and president of Music Venue Alliance Nashville. He's joined by Metro Council member Jeff Syracuse, who's also helping to lead the new Office of Music, Film, and Entertainment. Chris, Council member Syracuse, welcome to This is Nashville.
0: Thanks so much. Appreciate you having me.
7: Happy to be here.
1: Earlier this year, our sister station, WNXP, asked listeners to send in some of their favorite memories seeing live music at independent venues here in Nashville. Let's listen to a few of those.
3: One of my favorite Nashville venue memories is from this past March going to Cannery Ballroom to see the band Parquet Courts. Um, this was my third time seeing them, but my first time seeing them with my son, Hunter, it was just a great show show amazing energy, and as it turned out, our last time seeing a show at that venue before they closed their doors for good. Um, Bittersweet for sure, but I'll always appreciate all the great bands, the great times I had there.
8: wanted to give a shout out to the Exit Inn. Um, The first fall I lived here, I went to a David Bazan solo show, Um, and as a lifelong Pedro the Lion fan, uh, I didn't know what to expect. But at the encore, he played this really beautiful, almost haunting rendition of Hallelujah. Um, and at the bridge, his voice cracked uh, and broke. And I, I cried uh, for the first time at a live show. Um, and the whole, you could feel the whole room kind of take a gasp in. Um, I've since cried at many shows, but that... Uh, was the first time I remember crying uh, at live music, and it has resonated with me uh, all these years later. Exit In will always hold a special place in my heart, uh, and David Bazan is uh, a treasure.
9: My wife, Levia, and I have gone to a handful of shows since we've moved to Nashville a few years back. We couldn't choose just one, so here's, here's a few. Uh, we saw Wallows at the Blue Room, Bleachers at Marathon Music Works. Wet Leg and Nikki Lane at the Basement East and Casey Musgraves actually played at Ernest Tubb Record Shop
10: when she was promoting her
9: Christmas album
10: one year. So uh,
9: we're pretty fortunate to live in a place where you can see a diverse array of music at really cool venues.
5: Some of my favorite indie music venue memories have been at the Stone Fox. R.I.P. to the once great restaurant and music venue over in the Nations. Saw some great acts there. Nikki Bloom, Jennifer Hartswick. One of my favorites was William Tyler Band. Um, It was a great night of music, a
10: lot of special guests. It was pretty cool.
1: That was WNXP listeners Jeremy, Kaylee, Grant, and Martha Ann. Now, Chris, your venue got a shout out there, and I'm wondering... Have you ever been moved to tears at a show at Exit
7: Inn? <laughs> I yeah, of course. Uh, uh, I I get a little teary eyed at shows a lot. Um uh, I, I mean, it happens to me in the car listening to the radio, so that that that's an easy one for me. It
1: happens to me during when I watch commercials, so I'm with you. So <laughs> right. You know, Chris, I understand the property where in is located was recently sold and you all were able to raise money to purchase it from AJ Capital Partners, but they declined your offer. Do you have any idea of why they turned it down?
7: Uh, no, it wasn't an official decline. There it, it was no response. Um, so, um, you know, no word from them on, on exactly why they didn't want to entertain that. Um, you know, they have plans. They're not talking about that, uh, but they obviously don't include us being there.
1: Now, since the sale, there's been an an historic overlay applied to the property. So, Jeff, can you quickly explain what that means?
0: Sure. A a historic overlay is through our Metro Metro Historic Commission, and ultimately that protects the outside of a building. Um, And so it is protected from uh, demolition, but ultimately this conversation is about what goes on inside how it's operated, and who it's operated for. And so they only put a historic overlay on a portion of the building. They have the the, the corner where, where Chris operates hurry back that does not, did not include the historic overlay. Mm. So the foregone conclusion is that that is the ripe potential for redevelopment. At the end of the day, they spent, what, over $6 uh, million on on this property, and they're gonna have to make a return. And so the only way to do that, I believe, is probably for them to have to redevelop that that piece. Now, and And then, as Chris said, who's going to run that venue, and for whom, and how does that fit into our overall music ecosystem?
1: Now, you wrote an op-ed for the Tennessee and that yes. historic overlay de- designation, it really has unintended consequences.
0: well, it it does for this property because it, it, in a way, it is subterfuge. Now, I supported the historic overlay where we can protect that building and its legacy great. But ultimately, and the impetus for me writing that uh, that op ed is to let folks know, don't think that just because we're doing a historical overlay that we are doing a cultural preservation as well. Mm. Um, and for me, preservation doesn't mean just protecting what was yesterday, it's preserving our culture, our ecosystem, how things work in Nashville in supporting the working creatives that ultimately leads to the billions of dollars of economic impact to the city.
1: So with that in mind, when we look at our city, how is the Exit In situation emblematic of Nashville and what we're going through right now?
0: As you mentioned with Cannery Row, Exit In is, is one example. Uh, Cannery Row closed up. We've heard in the, in the trades that uh, Third and Lindsley is going to have to find a new home. Um, this is a very disturbing uh, trend uh, where, where we don't have sustainability of our venues. And so what I'm trying to do is Put minds together to be able to study how we can support and sustain not just the venues that we have now, the local independent venues, but also the venues of the future. We want a healthy ecosystem between the the corporates and and the and the locals because that's Nashville and that's supporting the culture that, like I said, drives. As NSAI says, it all starts with a song. We have to have those places that are the incubators for talent. Mm-hmm. Now, Chris, have
1: you spoken to other venue owners who are in tight spots themselves?
7: Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think, um, 90%, just over 90% of Nashville's independent venues lease their spaces. Um, and, and ultimately, uh, all of those venues are likely to face similar fate as Mercy Lounge and And I think, you know, that's a, a core issue that we're talking about right here is we have to ensure that, uh, these places that are so critical culturally and economically to our city are able to be operated by these trusted culture bearers um, who put the culture first. And uh, as long as those people are leasing their spaces, what we're seeing happen now is just going to continue to cycle through.
1: Now, you're the president of the organization Music Venue Alliance Nashville. Tell me more about what you're working on
7: been working very closely with council member syracuse uh, on a couple of things right now you know the uh the the formation of the office was mentioned so uh, we're excited uh to to see where that leads i think it's a good first step down a long path that could bring some positive change to our city uh the council member and i have some calls next week with folks who've launched cultural trusts um, in other cities in the united states uh, and this seems to be uh, a, a leading method uh, by which to ensure these places uh, do what what I just talked about, which was the property can actually get transferred to the trusted operators, um, as opposed to becoming corporatized, which is kind of the trend we're seeing in Nashville right now. Um, you know, we're seeing some rent relief efforts take place in other cities. Uh, so there, there are, uh, the good news is, is that uh, there are methods working in other places that, that we can use in Nashville uh, to address some of the issues we're experiencing. Um, The bad news is we're a little behind, so uh, we just got to hurry up.
1: time is of the essence. So, you know, tell me more about how a cultural trust would work.
7: Baseline, uh, it's just like any other trust concept. Um, So a a trust would be created. Funds would be contributed. Uh, You know, the nice thing about a a trust is uh, when you start to move into the nonprofit sector, out of the for-profit sector, is uh, there's additional funding opportunities there and sources of money that, as a for-profit business you don't have access to. So uh, you can lean into uh, these alternative funding methods to fund a trust and then the trust itself would come in and purchase these properties um, and have a body in place, a board um, that would steer the trust uh, to ensure that these places are continued to operate in the best interest of the culture um, and the creative working class uh, individuals and residents in Nashville um, who play on these stages and work in these places.
1: So Jeff, you're helping to lead this new office of Music, Film, and Entertainment. In what ways is this different from the former mayor, Carl Deans, Music City Music Council?
0: Wonderful question. At the end of the day, what we need to do is to ensure we have a sustainable private-public partnership going forward that can survive across administrations. It doesn't need to be a project of a specific administration, but it needs to be a shared uh, desire of the city going forward to be sustainable. Um, under Mayor Dean's term, um, it's it's extraordinary that it wasn't really that long ago. But things like affordable housing and and uh, uh, artists being able to afford to live here, small business support, we weren't talking about venue, losing venues back then. Mm. Uh, so. What we really ultimately need to do is take a look at what worked in the past, obviously from an economic development perspective and supporting the brand Music City. Those were good things, but we're now at a place where we need to support the underlying culture proactively to ensure that the dream of somebody coming uh, to Nashville with the song in their heart and the drive and the talent to make it happen that dream needs to stay alive and if we don't have some proactive policies programs to, to be able to do that um we're going to lose a, a piece of what's special about the uh, music city and so this office um is a very good step about sustaining um what worked before but also it needs the strategic planning and governance that is going to drive this uh, co-funding model, if you will, um, it just uh, doesn't need to be a publicly funded model, but private needs to be in there also to hold us both accountable to make sure it is sustained across administrations. So what's the first step for you? all? Well, the, the first step was announcing of the creation of the office. And within that is part of this budget that uh, we will be <laughs> passing with, with the, this month um, is a dedicated director level position. Now that uh, once that passes, then we need to reengage uh, the industry uh, community committee, if, if you will, um, and figure out the governance of 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 this office. And we're all on the same page. Can all uh, dedicate uh, sustainable funds towards it and work towards things like Chris was just talking about the programs that ultimately are going to support venues, are going to support artists, songwriters, because otherwise it's gonna be forced migration of creatives to cities around us. And they're already starting to nibble at our heels to get a little piece of what we've got.
1: Mm. I'd like to introduce my next guest. Catherine Edwards is a musician and business partner at the venue, Dark Matter. For people who've never been, Katherine, what's the vibe like at Dark Matter?
11: Um, so we uh, you know, specialize in underground music. Um, we are an all ages space, so when you come there, Um, You'll see people of all kinds there to see, you know, not necessarily the the names that you've seen before, names that you might know in the future, though. So. (laughs) So uh, from what
1: I understand, Dark Matter is in the process of becoming a nonprofit. Is that right?
11: We are. Yes.
1: So I don't you know, we don't often think of music venues as nonprofits. So what difference does that make for you all?
11: Yeah, so um, we definitely come at it from a completely, I guess, like a different perspective because we're mostly focused on the arts and um, trying to do what we want to do from just a straight business perspective, like, doesn't quite work, you know, when you want to include children who don't drink alcohol, which is the main, uh, you know, income of most music venues Mm -hmm. when you're not focused on that, it's like, well, how do you pay for, you know, the rent in your building or like to have guest speakers or workshops or any of, you know, any of the things that we have that we want to do because we would like to be more of an umbrella of the arts community in Nashville. So it's that sense
1: of community. There. Exactly. You know, yeah. and so is that sense of community that makes like the, the exit in a cultural institution, the cultural institution that it is. But there's times that are changing here in Nashville. Housing costs are up, like the council mm-hmm. member said, and more musicians are no longer being able to afford to live here. So do you all think that the city is at risk of losing its musical soul? Catherine.
11: Uh, uh, yeah, definitely. Um... It's already obviously become difficult for anyone to live here. But even if you were to live outside of the city, it's like, well, where are you going to play your music if every independent venue has closed or been bought out, <laughs> yeah. you know, by Live Nation or something? So it's like, it, there's not a whole lot of options uh, for people to get started. It's it's a it's a really strange way for a place called Music City also to think about it because, you know, you can't have more artists to have in the future if you don't get new people involved you know it's like you have to keep the cycle going there has to be new up and coming artists or else it just becomes stagnant
1: chris what do you think about the risk of losing our musical soul
7: i think we have to be honest about the fact that that's happening right now that we're losing pieces of it every day Uh, people are moving away uh, who are assets um, and part of that soul Uh, venues um, that are part of that soul are closing uh, so yeah, it's, it's happening currently.
1: That was Chris Cobb, co-owner of Exit In. He was joined by Metro Council member, Jeff Syracuse. Thanks to you both for joining us. Katherine Edwards is gonna stick with us through the break. Thanks for tuning in to this rebroadcast of our June episode, all about independent music venues in Nashville. After the break, we'll hear how local musicians are feeling about Music City's changing landscape. And share your memories of your favorite indie venues by tweeting us at ThisIsNashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. When independent music venues are forced to close, it's not only fans and lovers of live music who miss out. It's also the musicians who've depended on these venues who are losing opportunities to build their audience. During her final performance at Mercy Lounge, Nashville artist Tristan took some time in between songs to talk about why she will miss the venue. She met her husband there, for one. Let's listen to a little bit more of what she said.
9: Tonight, just thinking about how um, growth is not always progress. (laughs) And uh, money is not meaning. (laughs) and amenities are not culture. (laughs) But we're gonna be all right, because we're just gonna move out and out and out, and
5: out and out, and soon we'll all be living in Alabama. (laughs)
1: We've been hearing that a lot. Like that musicians keep having to move further and further out just to afford to live here. My next guests are musicians themselves and are quite familiar with these important spaces. Ariel Bowie and Mel Bryant, welcome to This Is Nashville.
10: Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.
1: Ariel, how does that resonate with you?
10: Uh, Oh my goodness, it resonates so much. I used to run Melodia Studio out of my home that I was renting in Germantown in Nashville and my landlord was raising the rent 10% a year. And um, as a person who was running a business out of my home, I couldn't just live in any location and I couldn't just live in a home with any layout. And I was really under threat of having to move away into a more affordable place, which meant completely shutting down my business. Um, the only way I was able to afford a place to buy was I, I like begged family members can you lend me a down payment and co sign on a house for me? Because I might have to move away from. Nashville if I can't afford to live here anymore. Mm. And so that was a really real thing. And now that I finally locked in a home and a place, a stable place to have my business, now all of these music venues are basically experiencing the same thing on a macrocosmic level as the artists themselves looking for places to live on that kind of more microcosmic level. Well,
1: tell me how you're feeling about that, like with the closing of the Cannery Complex and other venues.
10: Um, I am in a really emotional space. Uh, it's a space of mourning and grieving. Um, and I told myself I wouldn't cry on the air today. But um, it's been a really long, slow process. Um, and for me, it really started with the venue Fond Object. Um, it was mostly a record store that held events in their backyard and in in their record store and that was kind of the place that felt like the most like home to me Mm. it was artists always making really cool art no matter what level of popularity they were and someone who recognized me as an independent artist they they were like you are not just straightforward americana you're like a cool weirdo ariel and like just having (laughs) just having these cool people kind of endorse my art and who I was, um, really helped to form many more relationships in the artistic community here. And it's, it's like almost like a spiritual place. I don't, I don't go to, um, you know, church or anything like that, but I feel like what you build in these spaces is almost like a spiritual community where Mm -hmm. you're sharing your most vulnerable soul. We're talking about soul and it has been a soul crushing time.
1: Well, tell me, tell me, Mel, how do you feel about the closing of Cannery and other places?
9: I actually second um, the feelings about Fond Object. I actually played, like, one of the last shows there. Like, I'd found out that they were going to be bought up, like, weeks after we'd played there. And I remember feeling like I was at a cookout that happened to have music at it. Like, you know, everyone was talking. It felt like a big old family. And there was some sort of, like crushing metaphoric resonance to hearing it get bought out and then immediately seeing it get completely demolished and now you drive by and it's rubble Hmm. and um, you know there's a part of me that wants to feel hopeless like that and there's another part of me that wants to remain hopeful about people's love of independent artists and independent venues and the fact that There's more of us coming every day and that the more that we are, the more, you know, power we have to be able to make this city look like what we want it to look like in terms of being actually music city.
1: Well, tell me about your love of music venues. Why are they so important to you as a musician?
9: Well, first and foremost, they are our livelihood. (laughs) Hmm. We wouldn't be able to do what we are doing at all without them because there's no other places for us to be able to get in contact with to play at and the accessibility is so important to me in terms of any kind of person from any economic background being able to make and play music and go listen to music um because you know i like most people will go to see a show at bridgestone and it'll be a couple hundred bucks and uh, a lot of people can't afford that kind of thing, but everyone should be able to afford to see live music and independent venues make that possible.
1: Catherine Edwards is still with us. Now, Catherine, I understand you started off booking shows before you started playing music yourself. So did that, af- yeah. did that affect your approach to the kinds of venues you wanted to play?
11: Um, Definitely because um I obviously come from a much more like DIY background. Um, so my levels of like the things that I look for in uh, venues to play, um, mostly it's like how, how much are they involved in their community? How much do they seem like they care about the artists that they bring in and the patrons that come to the shows? You know, that's always, and how, how do they take care of these people while they're in their building?
1: If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil LaColona. We're talking with independent musicians Ariel Bowie, Mel Bryant, and Catherine Edwards about what they love about independent music venues in our town. Now, multi-instrumentalist Josh Blaylock couldn't join us today because he's out on the road, but he grew up in Nashville. One of his favorite independent venues might not be quite as nice as the Ryman, but it's still very important to him. Let's listen.
3: I was always going to shows there, um, and then and seeing like bands that I like. I don't know back when you still listen to you know CDs on CD players. There were so many bands that I followed and had CDs of that I would go to concerts at the end to see finally getting to play at that place a bunch of times while I was in college, and I think it's just a lot of emotion kind of all entangled together. That that place will always just be nostalgic, and it doesn't always sound great. You know, it's just like a kind of hole in, hole in the wall kind of, kind of place, but it's it's just got so much history built into it. Um, and then whenever I go back, I kind of get to relive a lot of that stuff.
1: Catherine, what makes independent venues so different from big corporate places to play?
11: Mostly because the, the bottom line should mostly be about the artists that you're bringing in. And, you know, making your music community larger um and so i feel like the corporate places usually they generally just work with people who are already well established and so you know if you book it they'll come like there's not a whole lot of taste making or you know really involvement in the community at all to to book you know like any huge act (laughs) you know it's Mm -hmm. like it sells itself
1: (laughs) we got a couple comments from twitter tyler blankenship on twitter says they fondly remember the time when local artists Terror Pigeon and Meth Dad turned the Mercy Lounge into a blanket for it. I wish I was around for that. And Ann McHugh says, tweets us. She says her favorite gig at Mercy Lounge was opening with her band Tony Joe White. It was a packed house, early Americana fest days. During those times, that just really great memories. What about the intimate vibe that those independent music venues really give you all?
9: Honestly, as a music lover and an attender of concerts, I have had significantly more enjoyable times at small venues than I have at arenas. Um, I've honestly come to really not enjoy arena shows nearly as much because of how distant it is, because of how expensive it is because the crowds don't seem to care nearly as much. I've been to shows where no one is even moving, as opposed to the ones at places like Dark Matter. People are jumping and screaming and crying, and you're talking to the musicians themselves, you're meeting other musicians. It's just so much more of an accurate representation of the music community of Nashville, because those big venues, you're getting touring acts and they're large major label touring Mm -hmm. acts. Mm -hmm. Um, With the smaller venues, you're getting touring acts, but you're getting independent touring acts that are in the same position as you, but from other places. You get to make those sort of national connections in a way that still feels really intimate and like a small community.
1: That is Mel Bryant. She was joined by fellow musicians Ariel Bowie and Catherine Edwards. I want to thank you all for being with us today. Thank you so much. All right, it's Friday. That means it's time for me to hop out of the studio and ride shotgun with one of our fellow Middle Tennesseans. Today, I'm meeting up with musician Cass Hart, at the East Nashville venue, The Cobra, where I first saw her perform. Buckle up.
6: I am Cass Hart, or my artist name is Cass Hart, and I am an independent artist in town as well as an entrepreneur. Um, I have a music school that I run with one of my best friends.
1: A music school? Yeah. You teach little ones music.
6: I teach little ones, big ones, old ones, young ones, anyone who wants to learn music. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> I really try to cater lessons to the students. Such a common story is, oh, I, you know, I loved the piano, but I hated my music lessons, and it just wasn't any fun, and like... I, I know, like, I didn't have fun a lot of the times growing up.
1: Who was your teacher?
6: My mom. Oh.
1: <laughs> nice. Yeah. Was she, was she super strict or she,
6: something? She saw my potential.
1: Mm-hmm.
6: And from there, yes, she was super strict. Okay. <laughs> but it was out of love.
1: What type of music would you say you do?
6: I would say that I am an influence of, like, jazz and R&B and neo-soul. I feel pins and needles crawl across my skin. They burn with fire over every
11: age.
4: We're here at
1: the Cobra, we're in the parking lot at the Cobra. Which is a live music venue. Now, I saw you in September. Yes. And I'm sitting down having a drink. And out of the side door is just, just this this sound. And I go in and I see you on stage at your keyboard. And it was just this, I call it this rainbow of sound. <laughs> it was a fusion. I feel like a little bit of rock was in there a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it was soul and it was jazzy and it was funky. And I'm like, what? And I got super <laughs> hyped broke out my phone, (laughs) became a follower of yours immediately, and I, I just texted and sent video to my friends like, well, I'm in Nashville, this is Music City, baby.
6: All the little things and every song I sing has been touched by you I'm noticing now I'm noticing finally
1: okay so in thinking about this intimate spot the cobra Mm -hmm. and there are other intimate spots in town Mm -hmm. but not as many as there used to be
6: correct it's sad i've been kind of furiously working on my debut album and i always just thought that booking a release show at one of these smaller to mid-sized venues would just be be possible because it has been possible you know I'm fortunate to have friends and a network and a community of people who know me but I don't have so many to fill Brooklyn Bowl like right off the bat and it's kind of intimidating to think about like well where am I going to play if all these places that once seemed so accessible are just gone
1: what are your, some of your favorite venues to perform at
6: Ooh, I do love the five spot I've played this five spot a lot and it just feels like cozy and it always sounds really good the people are nice I've enjoyed playing at Urban Cowboy the booking person her name is Carly she is super open-minded and she allows for more kind of experimental music there okay. which is amazing there's also a place that I hold near and dear to my heart Flamingo which is a, actually a cocktail lounge but the owner Angela she's just a total visionary and she has made and created this space that's, like, adaptable.
1: Yeah, Sid Gold's is a piano bar.
6: Why have I not been there?
1: Oh, you'll love it, people. They have a pianist who plays, and it's, like, karaoke piano bar, so. Heck
6: yeah, that's uh, my jam.
1: I don't sing any of the songs. I love karaoke. Karaoke's a moment to get wild. Yeah. But I'm like, hold on. I'm in Music City, and Music City karaoke, you, you better come with it.
6: You know what? I do disagree because I enjoy karaoke so much, and I enjoy when my friends do karaoke, and I think it wouldn't hurt for everybody to have a healthy dose of just being a person and having fun without the expectation of you gotta be killing.
1: Okay. All right, I hear you, Kat. (laughs) You've convinced me. Well, good. Lou Rawls is my jam Also, another one of my uh, karaoke songs Because this is how crazy I am The theme to the love boat
6: Stop it, let's hear it
1: Love, exciting and new Come aboard We're expecting you And love won't hurt anymore. It's a open smile on a sandy shore. It's love. Oh, yeah, I love what, it.
6: What do you mean you're not good enough to do
1: karaoke in oh Nashville? Okay, I'll try. It's just like, you know, I've seen some people, and I'm like, oh man, they're bringing the house down and yeah. what have you. All right. Bye. Bye. Baby, if you'd ever wondered, wondered what ever became of me, I'm living on there out here in Nashville. This is Nashville.
2: Yeah.
1: Thanks for rolling with me and Captain Merrill Stubing on that one. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour for this rebroadcast. We'll be back with a new show for you on Monday, all about Nashville's role in the importation and trade of enslaved people. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. Shout out to our intern, Tori Hoover, and the masterminds behind our theme music, L'Aranj and Blade. Special thanks to Celia Gregory. Paige Flager, Jerry Pentecost, Larissa Maestro, and Olivia Scibelli. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at this is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ecolona. We'll see you next week, everybody. And be good to each other.